It's time to move your body. Houston, can you hear me? Crowd control, can you feel me? Need permission to stand. I don't want to walk, DJ. Cause I sit in a wheelchair. When's it gonna stop, Tony? <laughs> my song. Oh, I thought you meant, when is your wheelchair gonna stop? <laughs> I don't know if we should be like opening our our new year episode with our singing voices. People missed our singing voices. They told me all about it. I got so many texts from our fans saying how they missed our singing voices. Yeah, is that actually true? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish it was true. Not a single one, honestly. I <laughs> I enjoy your singing voice. I guess that's why why we sing because we enjoy our own voices. So that it's all that matters. Fuck our listeners. Would you rather like have the best singing voice ever, or be so physically fit that you could like run faster than Usain Bolt? Jump higher than a high jumper. Wait a minute. Is this a wheel breakers? Would you rather be in a wheelchair but have a beautiful singing voice? Or be... <laughs> be, <in> a <laughs> be... Uh, no, it's... I have the power to make you able-bodied, but I can only give you one of two perks. One, you can sing beautifully. Or two, you can run and jump and climb athletically. Or else I run and jump and climb like Josh Gad. Like, I'm still able-bodied, but I, I can't <laughs> do it well. Yeah, you're like average to mediocre. Average to mediocre. Like, every time I try to attempt to do something remotely physical, I'm at risk of pulling a Kevin James, falling off of a fucking uh, Segway or yeah. tripping on a staircase. Or... I literally just rewatched Paul Blart. First of all, you said rewatched, which is a huge problem. I I've never seen Paul Fart Maltart, and I well, never you will. Can't judge it, can you? <laughs> Did you also watch the one where he talks to zoo animals? No, I think that was called the oh, life wait, you didn't of. Answer a... my question. Wait, no, it was called the life of a pie eater. <laughs> <laughs> so died, Kevin James. Sorry, fat shaming. And that's I, I, Kevin James shaming, okay? Not fat shaming. Kevin James. Or anyone who eats pie. That's, I love pie. Yeah, and, well, you shamed yourself, didn't you? <laughs> uh, Next time you have pie, you're going to be so guilty. Like, I hate how much I love this. Sorry, Kevin. <laughs> Sorry, Kevin. So, would you rather be super gifted with your voice or with your body? Ooh, that's a that's an interesting one. That's either way you're able bodied, so I feel like the overcompensation that I would feel for the rest of my life upon re, re like gaining the ability to move properly, it it would translate into a kind of self-destruction. Like I would I would run obsessively or I would always take the stairs, or I would be one of those insufferable assholes who who tells people what their average step count is. Maybe, or maybe you're just like sleep on it and be like, everyone thinks you're just like some lazy slob. And then one day you lift the car off a baby. No, but that's the thing is that I don't do moderation, even though my body and my circumstance 
puts me in a position where all I can do is moderation. Yeah, but then if you got the singing ability... If I got... Uh, this is what I was thinking, because, like, have you ever listened to a song that is, like, so beautiful, moves through your body, and it, like... Yeah. It reminds you of a bunch of cathartic moments or exciting times that you had the first time you heard the song. Sometimes it just makes you want to move. Yeah, the lyrics and the melody, they move through you and it's amazing. It like wakes up your brain. I I always think about the effect that music has on people with Alzheimer's. And then I kind of think that probably it has the same effect on people with CP because, you know, we have brain damage too and the like. But I love music. And to have a good voice would be to like not only love music, but be able to reproduce the beauty that is moving through you. And that would be special. But would you feel obligated to sing everything and to, to like show off your singing ability the same way that you would feel obligated to take the stairs? I don't know. That Like that's a strange comparator. I, whenever you have something you're excessively good at, do you feel obligated to demonstrate it in some particular way? No. I never really feel that good at something. Oh, come on I, now. I don't know. Like, I'm always trying to just... There are things I like a lot, uh-huh. and I think I improve on them just because I like doing them so much. Like, cooking might be an example of that. But yeah, I would never call myself like, good at cooking. You probably are good at cooking. I used to measure that. I don't know. I've only been in your periphery, like digitally, but just the way you talk about food, there's no way that the love that you have for it doesn't translate. I know. So there's no way that it doesn't translate into what you put in your stomach and what you also offer to other people. And I know that because you're disabled, that you work pretty hard to reciprocate toward people. And one thing you do do frequently for people is feed them. Mm. And the food that you feed them is probably fucking delicious because you're Tony and you don't do anything half-assed. I don't, yeah, that's true. That's fair. I don't know. I'm trying to think of something that I actually feel really good at. How about jokes? You're pretty good at jokes. You also have a propensity for packing a lot of jokes into uh, a single interaction. Like... Your your joke ratio per conversation is denser than <laughs> is denser than the average American comedy that people enjoy. Damn, see that is maybe the nicest compliment I could get. You're welcome. I'm so aroused. <laughs> Good. Thank you. I'm tearing up. <laughs> Can I balance out these compliments with a detriment? Yes. I'm honestly, I'm kind of more excited for this one. <laughs> Your hair is extra shiny today. You look like at some point you're going to try to sell me a car. And let me tell you why. Why? Let's get right into it. So, turns out we're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. And it's been really starting to hit here. The other day, there was one staff instead of like five. Oh, God. To get up every person. Oh, no. And so, obviously, everything was cut. It was, like, bare minimum. And so, I did not wash my hair. And that was on Sunday. Today is Tuesday. And my hair is still making up for it. And it's insane how much one day of not showering my hair. I'm so disgustingly greasy. Yeah, you're definitely, like, 
um, primed for appearing as an extra in an organized crime film. Well, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, for sure. Especially coming from me and my reverie for that type of thing. Yeah. Can I tell you a small thing about my life? Okay. Oh, this is pathetic that this is the only small thing that I can think of. But I'm ha- just underplay it. Make it like so small. Like I sneeze today. <laughs> My sneeze is so involved that if there are people around me, like, you know, at work or something who are not familiar with me, they will check in afterwards to see if I'm okay. I want to see the CP version of Cobra Kai where they're like trying to chop a piece of wood in half. And for you, that you just put your hand on the piece of wood and they rub a feather under your nose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In fact, that would be overkill. Like it would it would be dangerous. I would chop <laughs> through the whole block and then like and then amputate your leg with your wrist. Yeah, or put a crack in the gymnasium linoleum. Cause <laughs> <laughs> an earthquake. Yeah. Did you know that? 53% of all earthquakes are caused by CP sneezes. <laughs> I did know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a relatively unknown fact, but. Well, that's why I live in an area that is not prone to earthquakes so that my sneezes right. don't, don't exacerbate natural disasters. Yeah. When you're born with CP, they actually measure wherever you're going to move. They're like, let's see what the Richter scale says about that transition. Yeah, the Crip Richter scale. <laughs> All right, so we're off to a good start. I think so. Did uh, you bring up Cobra Kai in order to excite me for some reason? Because you know how much I love that show? Well, I mean, you got me so excited telling me that I'm a greasy mob man. <laughs> so I felt like it was only fair to talk about one of your favorite new TV shows. It's not new, but it is my favorite. Well, a new season just came out. It's definitely my guiltiest pleasure. Why is it guilty? It's so cheesy. Because the premise is designed for 12 for 12 year olds. Yeah. And they, you know, so are all of my jokes. No, I'm not 12. Uh, but, I, but I do watch Cobra Kai. Yeah, you you watch Cobra Kai, you laugh at my jokes. So. <laughs> Shit. All right, well, I guess you're an extension of my affection for Cobra Kai. But it's just it's just so much fun to watch. I love that show. Well, don't talk too much about it because uh, as a gift to you, we will be reviewing it for this show. Yeah, we have to review season three because there's a season where a main character is temperate. Well, season it, two, be, is it? No, I think it's season three. Is it fourth season that just came out? Yep. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, the first season debuted on YouTube, so it's people forgot to count it. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So damn good. That's crazy that that can even happen. That it can debut on YouTube? Debut, yeah. Yeah, debut tube. Debut <laughs> How was your holiday? I, I had a good holiday. It was very restful. I did nothing. What was your like sleep schedule for the holidays? Oh, it was all fucked up because I was getting real deep into a bunch of video games that I better not discuss. Right. We only have a certain amount of time. Yeah, yeah. We only have 100 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so did you go to bed at like 3 in the morning? Mm, I tried to. I tried. I made a concentrated effort to get to bed before 2. And most nights I, I, I got to bed at about 3. <laughs> 
super concentrated effort. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. How long do you sleep after that? I always wake up around 10 o'clock. No matter how late you go to bed? Because, mm-hmm. yeah, 11, 11, you're a lazy piece of shit. 12, like, you might as well move out of your parents' place. And 1 o'clock, like, holy fuck, don't even, don't even start the day. I feel the same. It takes me a while to get up in the morning, but... Yeah, because you don't drink coffee. Yeah. And you'll never be able to take that away from me. I know. It's like I'm trying to make you a coffeeholic. I'll never succeed. Yeah, I don't think you will. But you might, honestly. Depends how much I work or if I have to work any earlier or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so you played some video games? I did. Did you eat some... Did you make mom make any sex in the pan? She did. Really? Yeah, for the family. Did you do it with your friends again? No. Did you have any sex in the pan with your friends? No, it's... Okay, it's a Harrow Mendick uh, Kennedy family tradition to eat sex in a pan at Christmas. Oh, that's the end of the story. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's a lightweight dessert and you can have multiple pieces and not feel guilty even in front of, you know, the weight shaming members of our family who... Like you just did. Oh, I did. To Kevin, Kevin James. James. Kevin James. Fuck Kevin James. That's so mean. Kevin James seems like the kind of guy who's probably, like, really kind. Mm, you don't no. think so? Kevin Lames. If you watch the movie and then you don't like it, I fully support that. Mm-hmm. But you haven't even seen the movie. I don't need to see. I know what it is. It's, it's got some, like, diehard references and stuff. It's fun. <laughs> oh, there you go. Which, it, by proxy, almost makes it a Christmas movie. Sure. Kevin James is Chris Farley without, the, without a sense of humor, without the nuance. I mean, I will agree that I think Chris Farley is super funny, way funnier. Beverly Hills Ninja is a movie I want to rewatch now. But, I don't know, it's got his place. Sure. So you had some sex in the pan, you played some video games. I did. Um, what else did I do? I discovered that I love watching TV on my phone while lying down. I've never done mm. that before. It was so comfortable. How do you what do you hold the phone up over your face? Yeah, with my right arm. And then I lie there very comfortably and consume vast amounts of Netflix. Interesting. Yeah. You don't have a TV in your bedroom? No, I have a very expensive phone that I can just hold up to my nose mm, and right. watch the watch The Witcher. Are you anti TV in the bedroom? No, it's just another thing to clutter up that space, and it's already really small. Yeah. Like my bedroom is like Harry Potter's cabinet under the crawl space, and it has just enough room for my clothes, my power chair, and my stationary bike. And then it has a little double bed, like I'm. Like I reside in in an army barracks. Cabinet under the crawl space sounds like the no-name brand version of closet under the stairs. Yeah. So J- Kevin James is the Go-Cola of Chris Farley's. Yeah, okay. I don't want to sh- like shit on Kevin James right now. Why? I don't have a strong enough opinion okay. to, to shit on him. But there was funny parts of that movie and it was just like a Silly, not good, but fun, like whatever. Six out of ten. You're so mad. <laughs> You're just done with the podcast now. <laughs> you just want to end the show and be like, give me an essay on why Kevin James shouldn't be laughed at. Yep. Well, that's cool. 
Um, what I don't have anything new. My holidays were cool. I took a lot of time off work, which was amazing. I haven't taken that much time off work in, in memory, honestly. Yeah. Your life takes on a, a different rhythm. The pace of everything slows down. Your your mind can wander off into like natural directions. You can devote your energy to things that interest you and that are fun. You don't have to fucking constantly be thinking about emails or catering to coworkers, to challenging coworkers or fucking devoting your mental acuity to problems that don't matter. I thought I would be so productive. I was like, I'm going to catch up on schoolwork. I'm going to... Schoolwork? Yeah, well, like a course, an online course that I'm taking. Okay. So you're going to learn? Yeah, I'm going to learn some stuff. I'm going to... I just... I had a bunch of things on my list that I was excited to... Like personal projects that I was excited to take care of. Stuff for the podcast I wanted to do. And I just lazed around for two weeks. It was incredible. Yeah, it's like a vacation is simply a lack of urgency in any dimension. Yeah, like a lack of responsibility or obligation. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was crazy how how time flew, but also felt like it wasn't moving at the same time. It was amazing. But then by the end of the two weeks, I I was ready to go back to work. Yeah. Have some structure to my day again. What was your lack of structure? Did you just think about the food you'd prepare in the evening? I didn't even. Like my brain was so shut off that by the time dinner rolled around, I'd have to consider what to eat or I just order food. I, I ordered more Uber Eats in two weeks than I did in the entire year. Wow, that's so cool. I'm happy for you. It was also like my my parents came and stayed and stayed for a week so like that was a big chunk of my vacation and then basically by the time I left I was prepping for New Year's Eve Mm -hmm. and then New Year's Eve happened and then a couple days later I'm back to work so my time was full like I didn't just sit around alone doing nothing but it was cool to just not have any obligations I don't think I ever sent you the video of me pushing my mom down the hallway in a cardboard box. Was that your way of telling her uh, that vacation was over? No, that was my way of telling her vacation had just started. (laughs) Because we were like, usually when I hang out with my parents, it's like pretty quiet, low-key, which is fine. But then my friend was also here for a majority of the time. Yeah. And so I drank a lot. Like, I think... All day, I was like, I had some hot chocolate, put alcohol in that. Had some eggnog, put alcohol in that. Apple cider, put alcohol in that. So I'm just like constantly a little buzzed. And my parents aren't used to drinking. My dad doesn't drink at all. My mom drinks a little bit socially. So she had a couple spiked eggnogs. And then I got a package from Amazon. And it was just paper towel. But because it was paper towel, it was a huge box. And my mom was like, I don't even know how I'm going to be able to carry this downstairs. And I just jokingly, maybe a little drunkenly, was like, get in it and I'll push you down. And she just, my 80-year-old mom called my bluff and was like, okay. And she caught him. 
And I'm like dying laughing at this point. Like, I can't believe this is really happening. And I pushed her up and down the hallway like a bunch of times. I don't even know what to say. It was so fun. Yeah, really? It was hilarious. She loved it. I was like literally almost peeing myself laughing. And it was, she was great. I don't know. I, 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 she was just always down. She's always down for anything. Like the next day, it was Christmas Day, and she had like some more gifts to wrap. And I was like, why don't you blindfold yourself and I'll direct you how to wrap them? <laughs> oh so God. she did. Wow. It was so fun. Man, it's like you really, the apple did not fall far from the tree. Yeah, she was just down to have a good time. Because I know whenever I push my mom up and down a hallway in a cardboard box. Yeah, do you do that a lot? I do, yeah. It's usually when I've, I'm like fed up with her. Right. And I'm, I'm trying to set boundaries and just like get over here. She's like, no spaghetti this week, Jamie. And you're like, get in, mom. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that's fun. So you got drunk with your parents and you were silly. And then I, every year, as you know, I have a tradition with my dad where I get him the worst Christmas movie or not the worst movie for Christmas imaginable. So you got him Paul Blart Mall Cop? No, I got him uh, the Pastor, which was amazing. Tony, I feel like I'm stoned this episode. Like none of your anecdotes are really grounded in reality. Because you don't believe that's a real movie? Well, yeah. Like, first of all, you're talking about getting your mom to climb into a FedEx package and <laughs> pushing her around your apartment. And yeah. I, like, I'm thinking that's like, like a response to being away from your parents for a very long time. And then also some, some weird sort of way that COVID has altered our like socialization. Sorry, I should have said we also had dessert. Oh, you did? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. That that makes more sense to me. Yeah. That's more in line with my life. Right. Sorry. I, I should have yeah. made it a little more relatable to you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, so anyway, you watched what the Velocipaster? Yeah. Which right. can I, can I just, uh, make a conjecture about what the fucking movie was? Yeah. Was it, um, about a church, uh, that, was founded on the same land as Jurassic Park. And uh, Newman from Seinfeld accidentally spliced some kind of gene uh, with a religious patriarch, and he became a Velociraptor pastor. You're honestly not far off, but I won't spoil the movie for you because it's great. Is it great? You'll hate it, but I loved it. Mm, How much alcohol did you put in your father's drink? He has a similar sense of humor to me where, like, that's that you don't have to be drunk to think that's funny. Anyway, it's a terrible movie, but I loved it. All that to say, like it was it was a good holiday. <laughs> you had way more fun than I did, by the way. I had a good time. See, like my dad cannot tolerate anything silly. Yeah. Like he does have a sense of humor, but it's incredibly dry. And it's so laden with sarcasm. Uh, all of his jokes are like at the end of every single one of his punchlines, you want to call him a smart ass. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. My dad will, he'll just make a really bad joke and mm-hmm. own it. And that makes it funny because he just owns it. We actually played 
Balderdash a bunch of times. And it's like his favorite game. Your dad seems like the type of person whose silliness is is like consistently disarming. So he could exactly, yeah. he could enter like a classroom of sixth to ninth graders and crack the worst joke ever and everyone would laugh, including the adults. Yeah, like he goes and performs with his band in front of seniors at, in nursing homes. Yeah. And he really enjoys like the bits that he does for them, like the the jokes and getting them to laugh. And like, he likes that almost as much, maybe even sometimes more than the music itself. Right, right. Yeah. Every single one of my dad's jokes contains like a small dig. And then he's chuckling at the end because he's proud of the dig that he the just got. It. Yeah, that he just got at your expense. Like, I wish I could think of them. They're always incredibly subtle. For some reason, his voice is not in my head today. Oh, okay. I, let's pivot. Because I just thought of something that also happened over the holidays a couple of times. So I, I, aside from drinking with my parents, I also was able to go on a few dates with a couple of people over uh-huh. the holidays. Uh-huh. And something came up hilariously with more than one person in the past month. And I wanted to get your opinion on it. Sure. So I'm trying to figure out what ramp etiquette should be when you're starting to date someone. And by that, I mean, you start to date someone and you realize things are going fairly well, but like, it's still early. It's only a few dates in and their place is not accessible. So you keep having them over to your place. Uh-huh. But at what point... Is it socially acceptable to make a ramp work to get into their place? And is it dependent on how inaccessible their place is? So like, let's say I'm dating someone and five dates in, I still haven't been to their place because they have two steps. Do I get a ramp to go to their place? Or do you wait till it's official? Do you get a ramp before... You get a toothbrush? Uh, I want wrong answers only. Okay, so do you want me to be a cheeky shit or you want me to give you my actual opinion? Uh, let's start with cheeky shit. Okay, I for some reason I'm not feeling silly right now. Hopefully it'll hopefully it'll kick in later. I think that it depends because the ramp is a there's a like a manual labor component to the ramp. Right. So, but it depends on how many stairs, right? I think what has to be done is you have to go to some kind of social with this person and they have to watch your friends deploy the ramp. To see if they're ready for for ramp deployment? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For you to whip out the ramp. Right. Yeah. You can't, like, yeah, you can't whip it out raw. You got to ease them right, into it. Right, ease them into the ramp whip out. Yeah, yeah. So you go to a party with friends and they do it. And then your prospective significant other. You have to make sure that they're within eye and earshot of the ramp being deployed. Oh, yeah. They got to be an audience to that first whip out. Right. And then. They watch how effortlessly you drive up the ramp. Yeah, because I've been practicing. Yeah. I've been trying like different angles of approach. 
Yeah. Whether I go forwards or backwards, mm-hmm. whether I should put the ramp at the front door or the back door. <laughs> yep. See, technique is important. Right. And, and so you got to give them that demo at first because it takes the pressure off. They get to be audience rather than, you know, performer or recipient. Here's the thing. If I really like someone, I'm more likely to pull in a bigger ramp. <laughs> because yeah. like if they have multiple stairs, I'm prepared for the big ramp. But if I don't really know them that well, I might only pre- be prepared for like a little ramp just to get up a short little step. Yeah, and especially if you're nervous, the ramp tends to be smaller, right? Right, and but- I... It's sometimes a burden to have to carry a big ramp around with you. I can totally you get trouble. And... Yeah, my ramp's huge as well. Yeah, it's real cumbersome. Um, but yeah, you know, you you bring the right size ramp for the job. You show her how you drive yourself up up the ramp, and you you make it clear to her that you can use the ramp. One day, this ramp could be yours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but yeah, this is my actual opinion, though, uh, as we're not talking about it. Like, I mean, you know, if we're not talking about, I can't even say the word. Ramps. Ramps. Thank you. Mm-hmm. In real life, though, I think you really do need to show them before you expect them to help you get somewhere. Really? Even if it's like a one step, like a little two foot ramp? I don't care. I don't care how. That doesn't take much physical prowess or like explanation you literally just put it down i understand like a folding ramp that that like you know has there's a little bit more technique involved but for just a small ramp but you can't expect her to master the technique on the first ramp deployment so you got it's not that hard you just it's it's really about it's how you use it right no this is the thing it's because it's like this is the first the first time that she'll probably have to help you with something where she can't really make assumptions about how it will play out. Because your chair is really heavy and they're still not totally like comfortable with what you can do for yourself. So it's better for them to live vicariously through your friends. Do you think a ramp, leaving a ramp in a place, or bringing a ramp even, just bringing a ramp, is more of a commitment than leaving a toothbrush? Well, a toothbrush goes in your mouth, and that's slightly... That's that has, very astute. Yeah, it has, you know, a few more intimate connotations than a ramp, unless right. the ramp but is actually a metaphor for your erect penis. It's not. <laughs> My penis doesn't fold up. But there's no point in having a toothbrush if you don't have a ramp to get into the house, right? Like, logistically... A toothbrush has to come after the ramp. She could brush her teeth outside. <laughs> she could. Now we're assuming my own house is inaccessible and I need oh. a ramp to get into my own house. Oh, you're saying, should she bring a toothbrush? Oh. No, I'm saying, do I bring a ramp before I bring a toothbrush? I mean, okay, so the... I think the answer is yes. We're We're talking about items that speak to a certain level of commitment right. to the situation so it's about level of effort and also what the thing means symbolically you bringing the ramp means that you are willing to try to get into their house and oh, right. that's not 
I mean, for you, that's quite a thing. To avoid this symbolic gesture, though, should I just eliminate the dating pool of inaccessible housing? No, because that eliminates almost everyone in the pool. Right. Fucking disabled people don't even live in accessible housing, let alone non-disabled people you might want to date or, you know, they don't have whatever ability level they have. (laughs) But I'm saying like, I mean, even if you went over to another wheelie's house, there's a chance you might have to bring a ramp. So do you think it's you wait till you're official? Yeah, you do. So I might never see her place until we start officially dating yeah until she invites you to put her your ramp uh onto her staircase and then what if i get said invite uh-huh. and i'm really excited i bring my biggest best ramp yeah polish it up make sure it's clean unfold it unfold it groom it throw it on her staircase and it works like a charm yeah there's nothing worse than an ungroomed ramp you want to make sure you take care of your ramps for sure yeah 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 what if we start dating? We make it official. You and I? Sure. Okay. <laughs> we make it official. Okay. And I fly out to Thunder Bay uh-huh. with my ramp. <laughs> my mom would tell you to fuck off. She, she'd be like, you're not bringing that ramp into my house. Not on my floors. It's either a ramp or a cat. So. And, and so there you go. That's two fuck offs in a row, Tony. <laughs> okay. Let's say we're dating. And you live in an inaccessible house. Which I do. It's a one-step inaccessible house. Uh Uh-huh. We are now official. I go over, I bring my ramp, I get in, and I realize you have some weird decorations. Like, not just off. I'll take down the pictures of Gandolfini, don't worry. No, but it's like, it's like weird. Like, you're into like baby dolls and like like doll heads clown feet just pictures of kevin james everywhere (laughs) i'd be into that (laughs) yeah apparently basically i'm saying you have to make sure you get a refundable ramp oh because you've now committed to the person having never seen their space oh and now you're about to see their space and what if you learn some deal breakers about this person Right. And then I just break it off right away and say we officially dated for one ramp. No, you'd have to get Jeff McCool to pose as like a smoke alarm uh, safety inspector and then to go into their apartment and scope it out. Right. Maybe like a higher private investigator. Yeah, PI. Take some pictures of the wall art first. Uh huh. That's a good point. And this is, I don't understand. Did you actually enter the house of a woman you went on a date with yeah i eventually did bring a ramp and it was only one step oh damn so i brought one step ramp and it didn't feel like a big commitment dang you took the first step in your okay <laughs> all right but i've also been in relationships in the past where like we'll be dating for a while and then we're gonna spend christmas at her parents and her parents have like three steps to get in. So I need like a commitment ramp, like a full 10 foot ramp. It'd be funny if they sold ramps at De Beers right. for wheelies. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, 
Be like, I promise I will only ever bring this ramp to inaccessible spaces <laughs> for as long as we are together. I still have a ramp from an ex-relationship. <laughs> it's just gathering dust? Yeah, it's under my couch. Because it hurts. It just breaks your heart to look at it. It's a 10-foot ramp. Dang. So it's only useful in very specific situations. Yeah, you took a lot of steps with that X. That sucks, yeah. Tony. <sighs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's uh... So am I hearing you correctly? You literally have a variety of different ramps. Yeah, I have, I have multiple ramps. But more recently, I went to someone's place. And it was inaccessible, but minimally. It was like an eight-inch step to get in, and that was it. Okay. But then I got there, and there were some odd decorating choices. Oh, this is what you were alluding to earlier. Oh, you cagey motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Oh, god damn. So, the odd decorating choices, let me think. Like, let me, let me brainstorm for a little bit. I'm trying to think. If I entered someone's home... And they had multiple portrait portraits of like cats that they used to own that would creep me the fuck out. You ever seen a stuffed cat? Oh no. So she was like a uh, female Anthony Perkins. Who is that? That's uh Norman Bates. I always call Norman Bates Anthony Perkins because I think he was a phenomenal a- actor and nobody knows his name and they should know his name. It was I think it was like like the vibe was They knew it was strange, Uh but they liked that it was strange. Oh, so they were excited for you to feel slightly alienated? Really? Was the floor carpeted? Like lots of carpeting? No, it was hardwood. Oh, it was hardwood. Which is is an accessible choice for flooring. Was it it clean? Yeah, it was really clean, really well maintained. It was just like... It would be like if I went on a date with like Guillermo del Toro and then went into his house and it was just like, look at this. These are these are the things I'm into. And I was like, oh, I knew you liked horror movies, but I didn't realize it was like this. So it's like if Guillermo del Toro was a cat lady. Have you ever seen Guillermo del Toro's house? No. He Does it like have all his mannequins? collection. Yeah, yeah. It's probably all the like... Uh, mannequins and costumes and shit from Pan's Labyrinth. And also like just movies that he likes that he'll auction to buy some something. So but if this person was self-aware of the weirdness of their living space, is that not forgivable? Yeah, no, it was fine. And I'm just joking about it. But it did make me think like, what is ramp etiquette? Do I return the ramp here? Like, what if I wasn't into it? Okay. Did the taxidermy make it hard for you? Oh, that, to... that was that was a joke. There was no actual taxidermy. Oh, can you imagine? I wish there was. Oh, now I'm all disappointed and shit. <laughs> I thought maybe you had. You wish there was. Yeah, I thought maybe. I you had diffi- I, I try to be open minded, but I got to be honest. If I went on a date with someone and then found out they taxidermied their own cat and it was in their house, I'd have, I we would have had a conversation about it. That's for sure. I would have like immediately called you. It's been so long since I've had a good date with someone that I'm scared of what I would tolerate. (laughs) Oh, I know that feeling for sure. Yeah. Sometimes that happens in the date where I'm like, do I really want to tolerate this? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So 
Did you have difficulty deploying your ramp because of how alienating her space was? No, it was super easy. It was such <laughs> a small. Oh, don't don't be so dismissive of your ramp like that. I'm sure it was. <laughs> it was a nice, high quality ramp, <laughs> yeah. but it wasn't the biggest ramp I've ever used. No, no, no. I I understand that. Yeah. I mean, the biggest ramp, to be honest, is still collecting dust under my couch. Oof. We got to get that ramp out from under the couch, Tony. Yeah. I'm still trying to find that person with three stairs. <laughs> Who knew that a big staircase uh, at a prospective date's house would be exciting for you? I had a follow-up question, and then I lost it. Okay, uh, let's move on. Yeah. Should we move on to the movie? Yeah, let's talk about the movie we watched. All right, I want to say this movie is maybe the most suggested movie that we've had since starting the podcast. Anytime anyone asks me about the podcast, they're like, oh, have you watched this movie? Uh-huh. And the answer is we watched this movie probably before we even started the podcast. Yeah. Really, really early. We watched the original as well. And then we got frustrated that the original, this movie wasn't as good as the original. And so we kind of shelved it and I think you more than me, but we had a real aversion to this movie and to covering it. So it felt like we took three weeks off, come and swing in, and we covered The Upside. The Upside. Yeah, this movie, this movie's kind of like the Super Mario. Like if we had a video game podcast, this movie would be the Super Mario Brothers of content. What does that mean? It means it's the most accessible, the most widely known, right. the, the most critically inoffensive. Um, I don't think that's true. Because this movie took a lot of heat when it came out. Why? But it also came out in 2017 when people were accustomed to throwing heat upon movies about about minorities. Like this right. was already when we were discussing representation. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So... I don't know, do you want to briefly go over what the movie is about? Sure. So The Upside is basically um, a buddy dramedy about a wheelie played by Brian Cranston who hires uh, Kevin Hart um, at the chagrin of his most immediate business partner because he's tired. Nicole uh, yeah, Nicole Kidman. Uh, because he's tired of the way he's treated by people who are more accustomed to being a life auxiliary, which is the movie's 10-syllable term for attendant. And so it's it's basically just uh, a wheelie and his caretaker developing a friendship over the course of two hours. Yeah, and it's based on, like I said, another movie, a French movie called The Untouchables, which... We've also watched and we'll probably cover at some point. Yes. Um, but in short, we liked it better. I think it's a good idea that we um, took a break between covering these two films because I now forget exactly why we thought the French version was better. We haven't covered that movie yet. No, I know. Uh, okay. But I mean, like, we took a break in between watching both films. Oh, and yeah. I think up, upon second viewing of the Brian Cranston movie, I went I went into it prepared to dislike Kevin Hart more generally and to be disappointed by Brian Cranston, especially next to the performances that have made him most famous. 
Um, but I ended up liking the film, surprisingly, for a variety of little decisions that I really want to discuss. I think this movie falls for a lot of the trappings of the traditional film about a, a disabled person as played by a prominent actor. And it has that kind of overly weepy, dramatic tone that wants us to believe that mere, merely existing in a wheelchair is inherently sad and worthy of Shakespearean pathos, which it fucking is not. And every movie that does that can go fuck itself. To be fair, he also lost his wife. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like that, I think, is a, in the movie, feels like even more of the reason he's sad sure. than the disability. I, yeah, I understand that. And he lost his wife, I believe. Actually, no, he became disabled and then his wife died of cancer because, as we all know, like living with a disability is a Sisyphusian task of carrying a rock. Wait, of- sorry. You're going to need to define Sisyphusian. No, I don't want to. I, I, well, I don't even know what it means. I, I, it doesn't matter. I'm just being a shit. It's, it's annoying that all prestige disabled characters have to be saddled with incredible amounts of insurmountable baggage. And I, for once, I want a, a cripple played by Adam Sandler, who everyone assumes <laughs> like has no challenges in life, and he could just be a guy who's sitting in a fucking wheelchair and be of little consequence. And I just want to watch him struggle to go to the bathroom for 95 minutes. Yeah, without it being this like commentary on something. Yes. Yeah. Without it having a, an air of importance or significance. What do you think about the life auxiliary term? I said before, it's it's a multi-syllable synonym for something more simple. There's something I like about it. I don't fully like it, but I kind of like what I think it's trying to do in that it's trying to be like, you're not just my attendant. Like you're my, my hands and arms. Yeah. You're, you know, there is something unique about using a term that reminds people that you're not just a task. Something that I struggle with a lot. That's a very good point, Tony. Attendants that really make you feel like you're just a thing to get done within a certain time frame so yeah. they can go on to the next thing. Yeah, like oh, I'll fucking tend to this and then I got to go do 10 other things. Yeah, but a life auxiliary is like, I don't know if it's the term, but I do like what it's trying to do and that it's really trying to bring the humanity back to it. And Well, it's acknowledging that a person in a wheelchair should be able to have a life. Right. Yeah. You're not a bullet point on a task list. You're an individual and your life auxiliary is facilitating your life. Yeah, they're they're helping you with all tasks that you couldn't otherwise do yourself. In a perfect world, if I was rich, really rich as in as rich as Brian Cranston is in this movie, mm-hmm. I would want to hire someone who basically is there to help me with whatever I need help with, unquestionably. Like I don't want to sound like entitled but i'd rather have someone who openly disagrees with a decision i'm making but knows that i need help to make that decision like Mm -hmm. whether it's like gonna have an unhealthy meal for dinner and i need you to cook it for me 
Mm-hmm. I don't want you to be like, oh, you can't have that. I'm not cooking that. You don't want there to be an intermediary between you and every single fucking decision that you make. Right. I want to have someone who's just like, okay, if that's what you want, I'll cook it for you. You can tell me I don't want it. You can even like begrudgingly cook it, but you're still allowing me to have full autonomy. Yeah. See, like this is making me think of a hypothetical in which Roman Roy from Succession uh, was a disabled person. I think he'd make his mother get into a cardboard box and then push her down the hallway. <laughs> First of all, nobody made anyone do anything. <laughs> uh-huh. After we did that, another Amazon box would come in and she'd be like, hey, look at this one. I could just stand in it. She would <laughs> so love he- it. Yeah, she was playing. She was indulging you. It's actually quite a lovely anecdote. I'm just teasing. So, yeah, you bring up a very, very good point. And this is something that I didn't even fucking think about. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to deal with attendance as closely or regularly as I do. So I think it's understandable that you didn't think of that. Mm, Technically, I do have attendance, but for, for at least five years now, they've been my parents. And when they say no to me, it's more an invocation of parent-child dynamic right. than, than cripple-attended dynamic. Yeah. Except that sometimes when they do say no, I get very, very angry. And it's, I, not, I, a, yeah. it's, it's not appropriate to, to excise your anger toward your parents in some cases. And so it can lead to some, some significant strain. Right. Like I had a, I had a major outburst. Uh, before my Christmas holiday, because uh, my friend had asked me, and this is before Omicron lockdowns and everything, if he could bring his dog over to my place while he went over to his to a, a gathering at his at his parents' place. I guess I was like, "Yeah, I would love to see Zeke." And Zeke has been to the house about as many times as my friend Steve has visited in the past two and a half years, which which is to say that the dog is extremely accustomed to our living space. Excuse me, he's very respectful of my parents and of me. He knows how to tell me that he has to go to the bathroom. He doesn't stick his nose where it doesn't belong. And he's usually quite okay with me being like primary guardian. How's the dog? Actually, the dog is more obedient than Steve, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> and that's probably a joke for friends of ours who listen to the podcast not him anyway uh let me go on and say that i asked my mom if i could fucking host the dog for an evening and she said no it's christmas eve and i was like i was like what does that mean like the dog can sit in the garage you wouldn't even know what if the dog sees santa yeah or i think she was thinking like what if the dog gets up the ramp and opens the fridge door and eats the turkey and the sex in a pan which would never have ever fucking... Or like open to presence. Yeah, yeah. Or like, you know, criticizes her cleaning uh, job in the bathroom or something stupid. Like She just didn't want the additional stress or the potential for the dog to shed in the house. Yeah. And, and so she basically just, before any major event where family comes over, she needs to know that everything is in place. And so adding the dog to the mix creates unnecessary stress. Yeah. And I completely understand. And she has disproportionate stress whenever she hosts people because there's this like Stepford standard placed upon her by her mother and probably us from being conditioned to the way things go 
during Christmas. And I completely understand her stress vectors and whatever. But I was really upset because I, I told her, like, the dog is not ever going to leave the garage. If he has to go to the bathroom, I can open the side door for him. He's it, like, I could have had him over to the house for a number of hours and you would not have even fucking noticed because you won't, you don't come down here in the evenings. Like I was just asking as a courtesy, I would love to see the fucking dog. It's the one thing that I have asked for repeatedly to have a domestic animal around here because it does, I think, improve quality of life and it's the companion and it's something that we need and something that I've gone up, gone without for fucking years. I'm really fed up with not having some kind of, fucking companion and anyway so i lost i lost it when she said no and then i didn't speak to her or we didn't speak for a couple days like you didn't speak on christmas day yeah we barely spoke on christmas day because i handled my anger poorly and i told her she was being a jerk and uh she didn't like that yada 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 my parents should not be my attendants because if there was that professional distance i could have basically vetted my anger elsewhere nobody would have seen it uh blah 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 blah. and also it was this implication that i be me being left alone with a dog would have caused a disaster which is totally untrue uh i'm a fucking grown man who lived alone for years like i can handle the dog the dog respects me and everything it was just like it was this it was a it was a it was a synecdoche of a of a variety of issues that I have with my parents condensed into a single incident, yeah. and it just came to a boiling point. And I said some things that I shouldn't have, and I did eventually apologize. But I'm just I'm just tired of it, fucking tired of it. Well, I'm sure you felt viewed as incompetent, right? Well, yeah. There's that 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 assumption of incompetence, the lack of faith. And then there's also the fact that I don't actually live here. This isn't my space in which I get to define a certain amount, a certain number of terms or whatever. Like the garage is supposed to be mine, but it's really not, apparently. And, you know, I'm not entitled to like the bare minimum of companionship. Yeah. Which is really, really upsetting. Actually, there's a boiling point in this film that was wonderful. Right. So before we get to that boiling point, If you were in Brian Cranston's position, do you relate to him choosing Kevin Hart when he did as his life auxiliary? So he he chooses Kevin Hart uh, because he's tired of the veneer of medical professionalism that traditionally accompanies uh, like a formally trained life auxiliary. And because he's convinced that were he to come to a situation where he has a a medical event life-threatening emergency yeah he thinks or he's paranoid that his dnr would not be respected because his business partner thinks that he's going through a deep depression and that he doesn't actually mean the dnr and or something i don't know so he chooses an inexperienced uh, life auxiliary because I think he also gets the sense that this guy is going to open doors for him to a certain amount of experience that his coddled lifestyle doesn't allow. Yeah, honestly, at the beginning, I think he didn't even have that kind of insight. I think he just wanted to hire Kevin Hart as, like you said, like a, 
an easy way out. Like I, I think he was hoping that his incompetence, Kevin's incompetence, might even lead him to being put into that situation of being in a life-threatening emergency. Like hoping that Kevin would accidentally drop him or not respond correctly mm-hmm. in in a situation and leave him in a bad state. So he he sort of hires him as a, as an extension of uh, self-destructive tendencies. Yeah. But there's a kind of du- duality there too, where I think he gets the sense that Kevin Hart uh, is socialized uh, differently from his traditional circles, which I guess is to say that he belongs to a different class and has a different array of experiences. But also in his interview, he doesn't use condescending platitudes to describe why he would even want to work with a disabled person to begin with. Like, can you play the clip called disability? And then there's another quick one after that, that is really funny. I don't hear disability. I hear disability. Let me be your hands and your arms and your legs. Allow the space where you begin and I end to be both infinite and infinitesimal. I love that. All right. Yeah, so that's Nicole Kidman interviewing a variety of people for Kevin Hart's position. There's another subsequent clip that I like as well. It's sort of an interesting thought. The chair is a metaphor for energy. The way I look at it, it's not what's been taken from you. It's what you've been given. I was with my previous client for 18 years, so can't get rid of me. Well, I have kids of my own, so washing, check, feeding, check. Spills and accidents, check, check. I was a sociology major. I have to go get my kid, man. You can't always tell by looking at someone what's wrong with them. So that array of quotes right there covers a variety of different stereotypes of people who are uh, traditionally attracted to a caregiver role. What stood out to me in particular was the woman who said, you know, I look after a gaggle of children. Of course, I can look after a disabled adult. That tells me that the movie has a, a lot of insight or at least spoke to a disabled person while writing this script uh, because that infantilization is something that I fight in my life with my very own fucking parents, let alone people who are assigned to look after me. And then there's, of course, the the intellectualization of disabled care, which you get. We we had a number of attendants at Carleton who were like fucking philosophy and humanities majors who could wax poetic about the disabled experience from a sociological or philosophical standpoint. And, you know, that's that can be fun and interesting over drinks at the cafeteria, but it's whatever, like fuck off. Um, So then what else is there there? Um, The platitudes about, Oh, the way I see it, it's, it's how the, uh, the, the limitations placed upon you actually enrich your life and, and make you a more interesting character. These are things that we may have even actually asserted in the podcast, but as to whether or not we believe in them on a daily basis or want to hear a fucking able-bodied person repeat them back at us, that's another story. Uh, so just in those two clips right there, the movie's kind of demonstrating that it's uh, a few leagues ahead of other movies like Me Before You or, fuck, I don't know, Come As You Are even. Um, it, it It is very well written. I relate to this. I 
I see attendance all the time, especially now there's a revolving door of new attendance and I have to judge them pretty quickly, right? Like sort of size them up, if you will, Mm -hmm. as to whether or not I'm going to be comfortable with a certain level of training or certain tasks even. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, like the best attendants are just the ones that are eager to learn how to help you in the best way that you want to be helped Mm -hmm. rather than coming in with all their own ideas of what it means to be a good caregiver. And like often some of the best attendants are people who aren't nursing degrees or Mm -hmm. like have much experience because they're sort of like a clean slate. They just have the right attitude. They want to help their hearts in the right place. It comes back to what I was saying about the life auxiliary thing. Like, if I have an attendant who, uh, you know, I'm like, hey, can I'm feeling crazy? Can I have a mouthful of wasabi? And the attendant's like, uh, okay. Yeah. And then they give me a mouthful of wasabi. Whereas another attendant might be like, no, we're not doing that. Uh, and like, that's a little thing that goes a long way in making me feel like a full person. Oh, for sure. Yeah. There's a kind of, um, I don't want to say apathy, uh, but, but they are, they are sufficiently distanced. Like they, they have no sentiments about your disability. They're sufficiently distanced from you, uh, to do things for you without condescension. Uh, they have no assumptions about what the job entails. They also have a degree of intestinal fortitude, yeah. Uh, to tolerate the the challenges of the boundaries that they inevitably have to cross. Well, it's also not their fault, right? Like, yeah, the way it's structured with like the care plans and the bureaucracy and the rules, they actively discourage people from developing any sort of connection with the clients mm-hmm. or wanting to go that extra mile to make them feel like a person, like you're. You're sort of encouraged to just stick to the list, do the things on the list, uh-huh. get in and get out. Treat you like a colleague. Like not even a colleague. It's like they're like almost like a subordinate. Like they have the ability to be like, anyway, we've talked about that ad nauseum, but I, I agree that the movie emphasized those types of people that to someone outside of the experience even Nicole Kidman in this case, here's some of that bullshit gets speared and goes, oh, wow, that's great. Yeah. That's such a good attitude. Like coming from the right place, but it's not informed by experience because she doesn't have it. Yeah. She's a colleague of Brian Cranston's. So she knew him before the accident and she also works with him in a professional capacity. So to her... Like she, she doesn't see how he has changed after his incident and because he remains the consummate professional and the, you know, the, the wealthy uh, investor that she's always known. And so she isn't able to see through these new platitudes that Brian Cranston has to endure on a daily basis and therefore probably can't fully understand why he's depressed enough to require a DNR. 
The other great thing is Kevin Hart's character was not at all afraid. He didn't tiptoe at all no. around Brian Cranston, his disability, his personality. Everything was on the table, uh-huh. and he treated him just like another person. And yeah. I, I've talked about this with you so much, where I feel like people always have kid gloves on around me because they're like afraid to hurt my feelings because they assume I've been through enough as it is or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that is a very patronizing feeling and somewhat humiliating. And so when someone comes in like Kevin Hart in this movie and is just like, this is how it is. I don't really care if you like me or not or if your hands don't work. I think he actually says, don't judge, don't judge me, I didn't judge you. Which is such a good way to put it. It's like, let's just be people here. So I don't know how long this, this uh, story is going to go. But I remember the first time at Carlton meeting an attendant that I immediately wanted to be friends with. There was a time in my first year of university where I avoided the service like a plague because I thought the minute that I indulged in the attendant care program in first year uh, just to do laundry or to clean my room was the minute that I conceded that I couldn't actually follow through with the Carlton experiment. And because I knew that my sister didn't have somebody come in and look after her. I I thought I would be a disappointment on some level to my parents or at the very least a disappointment to myself. And so um, I just didn't use them for the first six months at Carleton and I was completely miserable, like one of the worst uh, depressions that I've ever had. And um, I remember at one point uh, at the start of second year, I uh, met more disabled people over the summer and I became acclimatized to that social circle and I got over some of my ableism, but not all. And nor will it, you know, I, I mean, I, it's not a Cinderella story, but anyway, I eventually uh, got a place in Leeds house, which was uh, the most accessible uh, residence at Carleton. And I was assigned a roommate who needed a tenant care on a regular basis. Um, and so I ended up getting uh, care by proxy. And then I sort of slowly warmed up to the reality of my needs. And I remember this person, this new attendant hire, this is 2009. He came into my common area, uh, my kitchen, and I made a joke about the incompetence of a particularly high-ranking individual within the attendant care program. And he laughed in a kind of like knowing way that kind of burst a particular bubble for me um, because he was he had just joined the program and he was not a person who was ever capable of mincing words despite that he's like a deep, deep empath. And so after making this joke and getting that laugh, I was like, that person is going to be my friend from here on out. And it was like, this is a person that I felt heard more so or on a level or about something that was closer to me than I even realized. And it was like, I I felt a, a kinship that was different from even friends that I had come to Carlton with from Thunder Bay people that now I'm not as close to because we just didn't grow in 
in the same direction. And, you know, there are rifts in, in those relationships and things that maybe I shouldn't have tolerated about them. But like, that was the beginning of, of a long-term friendship that I still hold on to. And it was just from this mutual understanding of the dysfunction of a particular kind of care environment or the circumstance of being disabled. And that subsequent friendship has its ups and downs. But the way that he can talk to me, I don't know, it's hard to explain. And I've, I've completely lost the movie. But I feel like there's a moment in The Upside where Brian Cranston has this realization that this is someone that I need to keep close to me because they can talk to me in a way that no one else will and hear me on a level that I won't find twice. It's really rare. It's also, as a disabled person, so often, uh, at least for me, I tried to sort of shelter certain friends and friend groups from that whole part of my life. So when you are able to connect on that level with someone who gets that part of your life, sees you for that, and still sees you as a whole person afterwards, it's really rare and you, you hold on to it and you cherish it because it's so easy to want to sort of just pretend that that whole disabled part of your life and all the stuff that comes with it doesn't exist or you minimize it. And so when you're able to just look at it dead in the face and share it with someone, you have to cherish that. You really do. The crazy thing is that you, that it's feasible to have very close relationships with somebody who just doesn't really see that side of you. Like they see it, but but not the ugly part because friendships yeah. are, are not supposed to be about the uglier side of the terms of your care. So as a disabled person, you actually become an expert at hiding those things or at standing off the edges of, of, of those needs. And the first time you don't have to do that or the first time you can joke about it in a way that is ostensibly uncomfortable. It's, it's like unbelievable. Well, it's also like, for me, I mean, it's harder to hide behind because it's a bigger part of my life. And so most of my closest friends are people who really know intricately those aspects of my life. Yeah. Because I feel like I can just be 100% authentic around them. I don't have to shy away from things. I don't have to tiptoe around things that out of fear for making them uncomfortable. Yeah. It's just easier for me to be fully me. I can spend days on end with them uh -huh. because they, they already are exposed to all of it. So nothing comes as a you. surprise. They trust yeah. me, but I trust them too. Yeah. And so yeah, you're right. It's absolutely rare. And I could definitely see myself picking someone who you can tell has a personality beyond their role as a caregiver. Yeah. And we've of course talked about the the, the perils of those boundaries crossing. You know, this friend that I'm referring to eventually left attendant care and then became my social circle outside of Carlton. So, you know, we sort of avoided those pitfalls in the long term. 
Um, but all of this is to say that there are hints of this friendship chemistry between Kevin Hart and uh, Brian Cranston. And there's there's some problems like with the movie, like as I was saying, the aforementioned uh, weightfulness of the tragedy of Brian Cranston's wife having cancer and him becoming paralyzing. That's just too much. Like just get like stick with the paralysis and maybe even keep the wife for fuck's sake. I don't know. Like, come on now. This movie is based on a true story. Yeah, but I'm sure they fucking added that relationship nonsense in post. You think? I it feels like they did, yeah. Cause they need they need some dramatic heft. And I think the movie actually could have done without all the weepy bullshit. I don't know. I think it's also valid to express that that is something people go through. Sure. Of course. I just mean that like, like we have enough of this stuff. Yeah. You know, why can't there just be a movie about uh, a wheelie and a fucking uh, evil body guy who are just going to be friends? And, you know, how do they enrich each other's lives? You know? Paul Red. Yeah. But anyway, um, Kevin Hart is really good in this movie. Yeah. So is Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston got a lot of flack for playing a disabled person. And I, I don't know. I, I was never fully on board with that argument because it's acting. And I agree that, I don't know. I still don't know how I feel. I, I sort of flip-flop all the time. But he was great. And I, I, I feel like he really sold it. I was impressed. Yeah. Kevin Hart had a lot of heart. He did. I did find myself going through this whole movie, comparing it to the the Intentables, like the original. And uh-huh. a lot of the plot points in this movie that had the most heart were, I feel like, no-name brand versions of the original. Like, in the original, it really did feel like all of the moments that were supposed to hit emotionally just hit harder. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Like, there were... I guess there were some regionalized or anglicized versions of jokes. And I think the word delivered quite well by Kevin Hart. I should say that I don't usually like him. I find him to be his whole shtick is that he's small and that he's fast talking. And typically movies like to juxtapose him with larger, more imposing action heroes who are like, quote unquote, real men, because they're a couple feet taller than him. And he is basically supposed to be thrown around by The Rock or by Ice-T or uh, John Cena, whatever it is. Uh, and in that role, I find him profoundly uninteresting. He, if, you're, if you're staking your comedic identity on being a fast talker, you should also be quick-witted. And I don't really detect that in a lot of his humor. But in this movie, like he slows down and uh, I think he, he, he does a good job of the sadder moments. Obviously, comedians are better at pathos than a lot of dramatic actors because they understand the relationship between comedy and tragedy. And because I think like seeing a comedian be sad is sometimes more impactful because you're so used to them being happy. So it's like... It, you have a weird sort of meta, a uh, 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 meta investment in them being their former funny selves. Just thinking of you know 
Jim Carrey whenever he's in a sad role or Robin Williams. Like they just know the dramatic extremes of performance. And uh, I think Kevin Hart is in a similar position. And it's actually kind of made me want to revisit some of his comedy specials and maybe even the stupid buddy cop movies uh, with him and Ice-T. I loved the rejection scene in this film when Brian Cranston goes on a date with a woman. I think the movie handles it so fucking perfectly. Uh, should we play a clip? I read up quite a bit. I, I talked to people. The librarian did her homework. To answer your question, and it is a fair question, it's not what I expected. It's a lot. I mean, what I mean is that maybe Dell should have stayed to help. You have to walk before you can run, right? No. Oh, that was completely the wrong thing to say. I I need to, to stop talking. <clears throat> so one of the main sort of plot points or the thrust of the film is Brian Cranston uh, needs a companion. And he's been sending letters to this woman uh, for a year. He writes her poems um, and she responds with a similar doting words. And uh, Kevin Hart comes upon Brian Cranston writing a letter at some point. He's like, why the fuck haven't you phoned this woman? She's, she's clearly into you. Like, what are you doing? Get out of your comfort zone and take action and do your thing. And um, so like you would think that that's kind of played out. Like you could sort of predict that he would be the thing that would come in and help Brian Cranston live his life and embrace his opportunities and blah, blah, blah. But as I said, because the friendly chemistry between the two of them is organic and well-earned, these these plot points don't come across as hackneyed or whatever. Um, so Brian Cranston goes on this this dinner date and the what I loved, one of the casting decisions, they make the woman or they have the woman be played by Juliana Margulies, who is a very attractive uh, TV actress, you know, very famous. And they could have had her be just anyone because it's only a bit role. The scene is only about, you know, eight minutes or so is the whole date. And this is a film that is over two hours long. So they could have just cast a nobody, but they cast Margulies because they want to give you the impression that these two movie stars, uh, Brian Cranston and Juliana, are going to ride off into the sunset. Like, of course, it's like the economy of characters. They're not going to dispose of her because she's a recognizable actress. And so they have this date and they have a wonderful conversation because they've established that they have a mutual literary interest and they spend the entire time talking about their jobs and Brian makes himself out to look very charming and professional and he, he is a successful individual, yada, yada, yada. Like by all measurable metrics, the fucking date goes well. And then he asks her if she thinks it's going well. And she first responds uh, by referencing a children's book called The Circle. And she uh, is trying to let him down lightly and she she can't say no without a thousand words because she's being cowardly about it. Is she being cowardly? Or, I think she, Or is yeah. she just like trying to be thoughtful? I don't know. When it comes to these kinds of things, I really think you just need to remove the band-aid. 
because all the all the platitudes and and the the analogies and and the words are not going to do do you much good like tell the person up front now 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 whether or not there is potential because the more you placate them with poetry the more uh you're trying to make it seem like it's not their fault you know it's it's about the more words they use the more it's about them you know all you want is a direct answer you want to move on with your life and they can't give it to you because they don't want to feel bad about themselves afterwards and fuck that shit i don't know yeah we've talked about this before in like my personal experiences i'm i've seen all sorts of it very blunt and very softened so let me ask you tony would you rather the woman repeat back to you that verbatim the concept of a children's book or a yates poem or would you rather she just say i'm sorry this isn't working out and then you get to move on with your life and yeah i mean i i want them to be direct yes. and not leave it as an unknown sure but i also value like someone who put some thought into something and can qualify this isn't working out because like that would honestly probably just leave me being like, well, what about it isn't like it is. I think I'd want some qualification on what that means. Throughout the date, there are shots of Juliana Margulies being distracted by food stains on Brian Cranston's jacket. And he gets a piece of food caught in his teeth. And of course, he can't use his hand to clear the food away. And you can watch her smile sort of dampen because she's realizing the full extent of what he cannot do and she's losing her attraction to him in real time and you you see her cut away to drinking more and more wine as the conversation progresses and that she's just like bracing for the inevitable rejection and i just hate that she uses like a long-winded allegory at first to say no to him. Yeah, but to be fair, their whole relationship was long-winded allegories. Like the letters they wrote back and forth were like, you are the swamp beneath my toe fingers. Sure, but but those those exchanges like in word form were confirmation of mutual interests. Like that was the basis of their chemistry and what drove their first date. They know that they are compatible with one another. And she lets food being caught in Brian's, Brian Cranston's teeth like allow her to reject him. And that's stupid. Yeah, it was a shallow rejection. I agree with that. I don't think she gave it much of a chance. Yep. Maybe I'm just jaded, but I don't think that's unrelatable. Like I, I often think in situations like that where you're like, all signs relating to yes, so then why no? That's why I like qualification sometimes because otherwise it's just confusing when you write a hundred letters back and forth then you go to a fancy restaurant and she's like, oh, actually, I didn't realize sometimes you would spill soup on your shirt. Yeah. I'm out. Well, that's the thing is I don't like qualification because no one is ever going to say to you no because of something superficial. Would you would you rather they said that? Yeah. Like, would you rather someone was like, I like you, but the wheelchair is just too much? Yep. 
because I've had that happen, and you're right. Like it, it, it gives you good closure. You're like, okay, well, that's not changing anytime soon. Yeah, but it, it still hurts the same. Oh yeah, the pain is totally unavoidable. But what good do platitudes do us? You know, like it's our whole lives, and it's so annoying. Yeah, it's a tough one. It depends how ready to receive it I am. Because lately, sometimes it comes as a surprise, and sometimes it doesn't. Like, in the case of the movie, I think I'd be really hurt because every sign pointed towards this was going to go to another date. Mm -hmm. And then she gave some around-the-bush answer, basically rejecting him, although not explicitly, and Brian Cranston sort of lashed out and got flustered. He had to push for honesty. He had to ask the question more than once. And then she gave this, I agree, very bizarre answer. She was a librarian, I think. She seemed like the type of person that would give a long-winded rejection, trying to save face. Mm-hmm. Have, have both ways. Yeah. Let's be friends. Right. I'm tired of that shit. Yeah. I'm done with that. No more friends. No more friends. I mean, this is very personal to me, as you could probably tell from the tone of my voice. It's also personal to me. I mean, I'm trying to think back on different ways relationships have ended. And it's so dependent on so many circumstances. Mm -hmm. Like, the ones that hurt me the most are the ones where you don't feel like you have a solid understanding of why it ended. Yeah. And that's what I think she was doing in this. She was giving all these flowery allegories, but never really made it clear. Although she eventually made it clear. She was like... She did explicitly say no at the end. Yeah. But he had to push for it. Yeah. And then at the end, after she said no, she kind of regretted. She said, oh, maybe I was too honest, which implies that... Like, she should have used kid gloves. Yeah. It's a very really breakup. It is. Yeah. It is. The, <laughs> when he tries to leave, he's so upset that he has trouble driving his chair. Yeah. And I can, I can relate with that. Well, it's also, he, like so many people in our situation, hadn't had something like this happen for him in a long time. Like the so, first date? Yeah, so he had yeah. built it up in his head to the uh -huh. point where he probably wouldn't have even called her for another while. He would have just drawn things out as long as possible until eventually, maybe by some miracle, they go on a first date together. And by then, you've sort of put this thing on a big pedestal. So when it doesn't work out, it's devastating. Mm -hmm. And he went full, like, grew a beard after, and basically was a shredding. And, you know, I, I've i been in situations where I've had to, like, tell myself to not let myself do that. Yeah. After a devastating breakup. Uh-huh. Often, yeah, you can get really upset after just a couple dates or something. I totally relate with this idea that Kevin Hart is kind of like a light at the end of a tunnel. I think that's why I was thinking about my friendship there with the attendant at Leeds House, um, because I think he sort of, his friendship 
pulled me out of a funk and has potentially done so multiple times over the years, which maybe doesn't speak well to my uh, mental health stability over time. But anyway, blah, 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 blah. Kevin Hart ends up being the thing that pulls Brian Cranston out of out of this depression. And the way that it occurs, how they reconnect, uh, it's it's really well done. And yeah. it's sort of compacted into a bit of a montage because uh, the movie doesn't have too much runtime left after the breakup. But it, it's done wonderfully. Like they, the jokes that they share and the the discomfort that can sometimes occur when Kevin Hart is administering care. He's, he's direct about it, uh, but he, he persists. Uh, like, obviously there's a, a respect and love uh, and love between them. Like there's a few tropes that I hate in this film. Like I hate that they compensate for Cranston being a wheelie by making him like disgustingly rich. You know, uh, he may be in a chair, but at least he can throw money at his problems. Uh, that's a fantasy of mine. I know it's a fantasy of mine too, but it's also like the movie draws an uncomfortable comparison. Like a rich wheelie is as impoverished as a poor black man. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there, there's an equivalency drawn between them. Like they're equally as invisible or something. And that's not really true or relatable like I, I i wish that uh movies didn't solve the logistics of well how do we get this disabled person around or how do we argue that they are actually part of society oh let's just make them rich and you know they it solves a bunch of problems for us and we don't have to we don't have to do a little bit more uh, legwork to make them more believable like you saw that with me before you and a couple other movies, I think, with wheelies. That's fair. I mean, we've also seen the opposite side, like the fundamentals of caring. That's true. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. that it, it is, I feel like if I was richer than Jay-Z as he is, yeah, I'd probably have a cooler wheelchair than he does. It sort of seems to be arguing that Brian Cranston, when he was able-bodied, was rich and privileged and white but as a disabled man he's kind of nothing and so those the traits that now sort of define a person's station don't really apply to wheelies and which is really uncomfortable i wanted to talk about one scene in particular the rage room basically oh yeah you love that was your your favorite scene right? yeah so there's one scene where basically Brian Cranston hates birthday parties. Nicole Kidman surprises him with a birthday party and uh, he gets very annoyed because he's like, there are a few things that I can control, the time I spend and the people I spend it with and you've taken that from me. Yeah, and all the high society people who comes to this party, like he can't stand them anymore. Because since becoming a wheelie, like they talk to him like he's a baby. Yeah. They also are highly critical of him hiring a black man to be his attendant. A black uh, felon, yeah. A black, yeah. Well, whatever. I don't think it was strictly a race thing, is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, good point. Um, so he's mad because he's like, I told you that I don't want this. And then you went and, and did 
like had a party anyway and it's my space and basically the same complaint that I had with my mom kind of where I feel like I'm out of control of my own living circumstances a lot of the time and then that leads to a boiling point so they have a big blowing up and Kevin Hart gets angry and throws the baby monitor on the floor that he's Mm -hmm. supposed to hold at all times and Brian Cranston kind of like winces in pleasure oh yeah and Kevin Hart notices he's like oh you like that you wanna you wanna smash something yeah and then Brian Cranston's like yes so then this is what I mean in that moment Kevin Hart is a life auxiliary (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah he is like, I don't care what you want to do. Just tell yeah. me what you want to do. I'll be your hands and arms. Yeah. I'll smash whatever you want. Like Kevin's into it. He's obviously loves smashing stuff. But Brian is getting the cathartic release as well. Uh-huh. Because no other attendant would ever be like, yeah, I'll smash that for you. Yeah, like he's getting help bringing form to his rage. Exactly. He's getting it out of his system vicariously, but also in like in real in reality. It's like great. It I remember the first time we watched this movie, like you had one of the strongest reactions in the history of the podcast to this scene. You're like, holy fuck. Because it's it's that. It's like I don't have urges to be violent or aggressive. Uh-huh. But there isn't much more that I want than someone who just sees me fully as a person, uh-huh. acknowledges my limitations, and just wants to help me compensate for them. So in a situation like this, where if I was angry and I wanted to smash someone, something, having someone there that was willing to do that for me is about as successful as I could measure. be funny if in your, like, uh, attending care intake interview that you eventually conduct when you go on direct funding, you ask the person if they are willing to aid you in the commitment of a petty crime. Yeah. If we're at a grocery store together and I don't want to pay for my groceries, will you help me leave? Yeah. Or will you be willing to put on a Kevin James movie despite the fact that no one should ever fucking watch those movies? Yeah. Yeah. Will you give me a mouthful of wasabi just because I need some excitement in my day yeah will you let me push you down the hall in a cardboard box yeah and then sort of the culminating scene in the movie is when they go paragliding together i hated that bullshit no you shut your mouth that's my least favorite trope in these stupid movies as soon as i saw this i immediately looked up where that was and i, I want to go so badly so dumb why is that dumb because like at the end of all these movies, like like remember Amy in that in that is Israeli documentary about the guy who goes and yeah. confronts his doctor. He gets in a race car and drives down the road, and everyone's like, "Look at Amy, he's free." It, yeah, side like, car. So fucking stupid. And what like what why else? Why is that so frustrating for you? I because why why do movies always equate freedom with some sort of illogical extreme sport? Like it's like it's so it's such lazy visual shorthand. First of all, you don't like hockey. You don't like playing sports, and that's the part of you that doesn't like these parts of movies. 
<laughs> That's a fair accusation. Yeah, so... You're, you're saying, like, shut up, nerd. Yeah. Maybe if you were a jock, you'd care. Yeah, no, if the culminating scene was he got to play the Witcher over again or something, <laughs> then you'd be super excited. Fuck off, Tony. You're a dork, too. What does JSON stand for? I actually don't know what it stands for. JavaScript. I don't know. JavaScript object notation. Okay, I didn't know that. Yes, you did. I didn't. Fuck you, Tony. Also, even if I did, that doesn't negate my <laughs> love for sports or wanting to go paragliding. Okay, real man. Tell me about fucking how paragliding is cool. Okay, fine. Paragliding <laughs> is cool. You don't have to say it's cool, but you don't talk about it as if it's objectively uncool. Just say you don't like it. Just say you don't have any interest in going paragliding, but that doesn't mean objectively nobody should want to do this. Okay, fine. If I was Brian Cranston in that situation uh-huh. and my friend saw me at the lowest point in my life post all of these losses and he saw the thoughtful idea to bring me paragliding, which remember is the incident that made him disabled. Which is another stupid thing. Why is that stupid? Why would you do this the the same thing that made you paralyzed? Because it it takes power away from it. Oh (laughs) it's frustrating how angry you you get when you it's one thing to be like, yeah, I just don't feel the same way. But you're like, stupid. Don't enjoy things like Kevin James and paragliding. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I'm a cynical snob sometimes. <laughs> Anyways, I, paragliding has been near the top of my bucket list since seeing this movie because I didn't know there was accessible paragliding. That's so cool. All right, so you're saying that I have to go paragliding with you one day to cross it? No, I'm not bringing you. (laughs) Your shitty attitude. (laughs) The whole time. Oh, yeah, cool, okay. Let's go with the birds are. (laughs) Didn't evolve enough to use their legs. (laughs) So can I at least watch when you go paragliding? No, I'll send you a video. Okay, fine. But I'm bringing you. After that? (laughs) After all that? Imagine... If at the end of the movie, Brian Cranston like booted up Halo Infinite, and I just thought that was the best conclusion to a fucking movie ever. You probably would. <laughs> I was just such a selfish a- asshole. He'd be like, oh, this movie understands being a wheelie. <laughs> it understands all wheelies. They clearly had good wheelie representation yeah. in forming the writer's room. Yeah, yeah. To know... Oh, wheelies play Halo. Yeah. At the end of the movie, uh, Brian Cranston emphatically yells, I love Karate Kid. <laughs> and I'm like, yes. Instead of opera, he just listened to the soundtrack of Cobra Kai. Right, right, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. All those like the fish out of water, like like juxtaposing class elements, like some of them were super tired, but just the way that Kevin Hart reacts to them is really great. Yeah, he's very good at at emotional reactions. I think that's sort of his secret sauce. Putting him in front of a magician or a a weird exotic animal 
So I want a roller coaster, putting him in a haunted house. Those are like cheap ways to get him into that element where he's just like reacting emotionally. And then in movies, that's also what makes him money. It's like when he's playing off the rock and being like, I'm a little guy. I can't believe you just said that to me. Or like in this movie where he's like, oh, there's no way I'm touching you, catheter. There's no way I'm, you know, like those kinds of things I think he's really good at. And because he is very good at that and Brian Cranston's character is very dry and like logical, like a calculator of a person, it plays off each other very well. He's very funny too in an understated way. I think Kevin Hart's character brings that out of his character. Yeah, they play off each other very, very nicely. Yeah. Um, it's it like the the greatest compliment that you can pay this movie is that it is totally understandable that the mere reunion of Kevin Hart and Brian Cranston lifts Cranston out of his depression. Yeah. Like it's to- totally believable. And that's not easy to do. That is based on a true story, but, but it, it, they portrayed it very well. Mm-hmm. Do you want to do a wheel breaker? I don't think we have time today. We're uh, we're past the two hour mark. Okay. Let's do one next week. Would you like to tell people about Patreon? So we have a Patreon, everyone. We told you that it was coming. It came. If you want to be a supporter, it's five bucks a month, Canadian. And then with that, you get a warm, fuzzy feeling, no, uh, knowing that you're contributing to the expenses we incur from producing this podcast. They're not significant but they're not trivial they're not trivial yes and then after that we have the patreon tier which is uh 12 canadian and for that you get a sticker and then there's something else isn't there tony yeah you also get a shout out in the show notes right 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 and you get a warmer fuzzier feeling it's even warmer and fuzzier yeah, it's it's actually, it's a warm, fuzzy feeling and then a tingling near your ramp. Right. Mm-hmm. Your ramp will tingle mm-hmm. and you get access to our Discord channel, which you can join and you can chat with us. So you can hang out with us. You can send us messages. You can send us movie ideas. You can tell us where we were wrong about a movie. You can tell us how much you hate ramps. Does that mean we have to start ignoring people on Instagram and Facebook? Like they message us privately and we have to tell them to fuck off or um, go to the Discord? You go to the Discord. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's, it's a, you can also talk to each other. So you can start a little community of other uh, people, right? So you yeah. can be like, hey guys, did you, uh, how'd you like that latest episode? They're pretty stupid, eh? And you can be like, <laughs> yeah, fine. Honestly, don't know why I'm paying three dollars an episode for this. <laughs> so the opportunities are endless, and you know, if we see any support through those tiers, maybe in the future we'll have another tier. But again, I just want to iterate, reiterate, like no obligation. You can the best thing you can do to support us is still to share, listen, tell your friends, subscribe download the episodes we should have the option for people to get um the straws that you use in physical in in, uh, physical therapy you know that's gonna take more than three dollars an episode yeah yeah okay okay what about popsicle sticks 
You think people are going to want my used spitty popsicle sticks? You would. <laughs> I'll send you some. Okay. Okay, I'll be a guinea pig. If I sent you a Ziploc bag of used popsicle sticks, what would you realistically do? You throw them out. What would I say? This is the hardest question I've faced in months. Jesus. Don't don't dance around it with some flowery allegory, Jamie. Tell me how it is. <laughs> I'd be like, ew, gross. And then I'd throw them in the garbage. It hurts, but at least I know for sure. <laughs> All right, guys, girls, listeners, fans, aliens. Here, I just know it's aliens. That would be so cool. That would be awesome. Take care, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>